SAFM Radio and at Tabiso Musia on Twitter. Up next, now we're going to continue our discussion that we had two weeks ago where we discussed that uh, a research paper that was put together by Dr. Habib Norbay, uh, the senior lecturer and sports scientist at UJ, about the high number of proteas coming from boys-only schools. And uh, we just want to pick up, pick up where we left off last time. And I know we couldn't get through some of your uh, questions. I mean, there was no doubt he put us, he gave us the numbers. He, uh, they were put out there that uh, it is proven that the way to the proteas is if you go to a boys-only school. Uh, but let's take it further now. Dr. Habib Norbay joins us on the line again. Dr. Norbay, good evening, and thanks again for being able to speak to us tonight here on SAFM. Good evening, Tabisu. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. I hope you are well too, sir. Well, thank you. I know we, we spoke a lot about boys-only schools and private schools when we discussed the paper about two weeks ago, but it also did make specific reference to African-speaking schools like Afiz, like Dr. Yoon, like Vatterklof, also producing these players that go on to play uh, for the national team, and we didn't really touch on that. What now do we attribute this to, that the fact that you've also found a link with just African-speaking schools? Yeah, so I'm not really sure if it's only Afrikaans-speaking schools, but I think what's very important is that we need to cluster a number of these schools, as we found that it was under 50 schools that have produced the vast majority of protest cricketers at the elite level. And one of those cluster names is known as the elite boys' schools. Now, I know a lot of people find this terminology problematic because they want to classify how do you know how to define what elite is. And I think that's the real issue on hand Mm -hmm. and what needs to be discussed. And the definition for the purpose of this research is that elite needs to be classified in the consensus of those schools that have former and longitudinal years of having good structures for cricket as well as coaching structures, which we had spoken about in the last um, Mm -hmm. interview last week, that it was largely manifested from the colonial traditions that have been imposed to a number of these schools where the British colony introduced cricket into a number of these schools in the 1800s and even into the 1900s as well. So I think that's very important is to understand the cluster terminology of elite boys schools Mm -hmm. and how they have shaped South Africa's national cricket team over the years. So whether we're looking at teams that have been traditionally formalized from from Victorian philosophy or even from your traditional English schools or even now even known as Africana schools, that is still under the same cluster of elite boys' schools. And very, very, very few of our public schools, our co ed public schools, can be classified can be classified under the elite boys schools uh, cluster terminology. What about language then, Dr. Norobai? I mean, how big a factor is language? Because I'll tell you with my experiences or interviews where we've spoken to black rugby players, they always tell us how Afrikaans is the common language at rugby teams and sometimes uh, they, they can't speak Afrikaans and they already feel like they're on the back foot as soon as they start there. That's a very important point because the school does not only have exceptional sporting facilities, but say, for example, with Afrikaans is one of the languages or the mediums of instruction in the classroom, some black African learners, particularly those who are coming from the rural areas or the disadvantaged areas, still attend these schools, but then they may find it challenging to cope with academic and sporting endeavors at the school in large numbers, and mainly due to the language. And as we know, that during the apartheid era, a lot of these white public schools, such as, say, if I can make give examples, Westville High, Durban High School, had outstanding facilities which were on par with those kind of private schools, but the key aspect to consider is that the number of South African cricketers that were produced through these schools 
also had uh, different types of cultures that had they had also portrayed during the academic academic and extracurricular activities. So to come back to the language aspect, that also plays a huge factor when it comes to to these um, when it comes to cricketers who don't um, are not familiar with with a certain language when they go to these schools. And in addition to that, what's also really important to consider is that language and culture. Uh, in, in, in the current South African test team is to a far greater degree than in the past. The, you know, the, there is uh, there's a more equitable representation where in the past we haven't really seen that. Yeah. However, is the, although we're seeing a more equitable representation of race, language and culture in our approach here set up, we're not really seeing that at the feeder system and that's where we need to start focusing on now. So although the government has put policies on this, although Cricket South Africa has started to do great work in this area, my question is, I want to measure the implementation ratio. Mm-hmm. How much of this ratio of the policy that has been administered, how much has been actually implemented? And if it has been implemented, how much of these have been sustainable and how have they followed up on it? Because we're not really seeing, based on the study that I've conducted, that this is the stats that are coming through. There was a voice note um, right towards the end of our first conversation when somebody asked a similar question about what does this say about government, uh, the fact that these, all these protests come from only 2 to 3% of the schools around the country. Does it talk to a lack of will from government to make sure that equal opportunities are created and the fact that we find ourselves so many years later? I mean, that, that's, a, that's another study on its own, that, that one would need to do a feasibility study and a needs analysis to really understand what's actually happening with these kinds of implementations and these practical implications uh, around this uh, topic. We know that different sporting codes, not just to speak about cricket, but each sporting code had has its own unique dynamics and facts to consider. And how are they implementing all of these structures, facilities, culture, etc at the grassroots level so that we try and strive towards an equitable representation and equity of excess i mean that's that's a very important topic that that one needs to consider and i think as i said in the last interview last week that you know equality is a very uh, challenging aspect to really achieve you know it's very similar to the notion of perfection no one is perfect but we're always trying to do our best to strive towards perfection but it's never perfect and very similarly we should, as a society, we should strive towards equality, even when we know that it will never be 100% equal. And I think that's the challenge that we have in South Africa. How much are we doing to strive towards the notion of equality so that we can start seeing a more equitable representation, access of opportunities and transformation at the grassroots level and then feeding up onto the national level? So to answer your question, I think we need to start revisiting how these implementations are being done, and we need to start providing something, a tool which in research that is known as something which is known as an impact assessment. We can assess the impact that some of these implementations that the government and the different sporting bodies are doing. What is the, what is the impact that is being that is being done, and how can we assess it to that so that we can maintain the positives, but then start to fill in the gaps of the negatives. And once again, does it become the sole responsibility of government or does it become the responsibility of the federations or a joint responsibility? Somebody even after the show was actually saying that, you know, uh, even black businesses now are not coming on board and, and, and just supporting communities, helping them with sporting facilities. Everybody just wants to focus and blame government for everything. 
I think for me, it's multifactorial. We can't put all our responsibilities on government. I think each different context and each different setting have a shared responsibility towards a common cause. And a common cause is that we want the best South African cricket team to walk out on the field and play the best cricket that they can. At the moment, we know that we have the best cricket team on field. The question that a lot of the members of the public want to know is why are they not having an equal kind of opportunity at the grassroots level? And that's the kind of um, message that this paper has surfaced, is that the elite schools or the boys-only schools are still shaping the future of our South African cricket stars. And it may be a similar consensus at the, at the at other sporting codes. So I think that it is multifactorial. We know that government has a mandate to provide certain structures at the grassroots levels. But I think if we look into other settings and other sectors, such as NGOs, uh, business and corporate, um, if we look at other um, non-profit organizations or even other types of government or even cricket bodies that want to all focus on the common good and the common cause for wanting to have the best opportunities for young cricketers, both male and female, to be the best that they can be, knowing that all the structures and all the facilities are not the same. And when I talk about this, I'm not just really emphasizing the point of rural areas or Mm. townships or disadvantaged areas. I'm also talking about areas that are in low to middle income settings. You know, Mm -hmm. so I mean, even if you look for in Gauteng, for example, El Dorado Park or Delphos, that needs to be revisited. You go into other cricket clubs that I've seen in Cape Town, um, perhaps Plumstead, or you look at Cravenby. Those kinds of areas are not in the township, but they need a certain amount of attention. You know, so we need to have different tiers, structures that are currently there for sport, not just the upper tier in terms of clubs or schools, but even the lower tiers, what's happening there. So I think there's a disjoint there, and that's something that we need to start revisiting. And I think it's also the consensus and the impetus that the current schools that, that, that are producing our top cricketers in the country, how much are they willing to provide an extended hand to those cricketers who are really um, uh, talented but are unable to fit into the school? How much are they willing to compromise and allow them to come into that system where they can excel? I think it, it, it is tough and it has those challenges, I do understand, but I think it is a multifactorial purpose there where every sector and every person within those sectors can play a vital part towards this common cause and towards this common goal. Okay, we've got a few voice notes here. If you've just joined us, we are just revisiting a conversation that we had recently with Dr. Habib Norbay, Senior Lecturer and Sports Scientist at UJ, about uh, how it seems like the only way to get to the Proteas uh, team is through uh, these boys-only schools or these private schools. And uh, you can send your voice notes to 061-4104-107. And remember, like we said the other time, that nobody's playing a blame blame game here the man went out and, and did his research and this is what he found and he's just sharing it with us and uh, he did say that he'll also share it with cricket south africa because some of you were saying we're asking if he's shared it with cricket south africa and if they are aware of this let's take some voice notes good evening Tabiso. good evening to your guest uh, it's uh, lebra here in east london we have the kfc mini cricket program which is one of the biggest development cricket programs in the world um, it's been a wonderful program to see, um, you know, develop over the past uh, few years. Um, 
how can cricket south africa utilize the kfc mini cricket program to you know not only focus on these you know prestigious schools but to spread their wings in other schools in in, in villages in townships in rural areas where cricket is not that big because this program focuses on schools and i think we must make this program uh you know we must spread it into other areas so how how can cricket south africa spread the wings of the kfc mini cricket program to grow the game thank you very much tabiso evening the member tulani from milan my question for the guest today is what is the ratio of the players who played juniors but they didn't reach highest level because maybe they were not in the good structure and also those players they were good when they were young while playing for mixed school and playing for good franchise but now it didn't reach for the level at the top to the senior proteas what happened to them does he have a stats on that thanks Okay, good points, guys. And I do note some of the tweets also. Uh, Dave, I'll also get to your tweet. We just want to take a quick break and we'll let Dr. Norbay answer after that. Leading sport stories of the day on SAFM. Let's get to some of the questions, Doc. We'll start with Libra. Libra wants to know why, how can this mini cricket that is focused on schools be utilized and be uh, spread out? Libra, you're showing your age here, man, because we used to play Baker's mini cricket. KFC cricket is just something recent here. And by the way, Baker's mini cricket, I don't think I played it through school. I think it was a community-based project. So, uh, Doc, do you want to pick up on that? Yeah, look, I mean, mini cricket, whether it was Bakers or KFC, they have done considerable work and very good work. I must applaud Cricket South Africa on doing a lot of great work with KFC and, and Bakers mini cricket because they have, as you said, reached a lot of townships, communities, different schools, different settings to introduce a lot of kids to the game of cricket. So I think on that regard, they have really done well. And we even know of a lot of uh, cases where a number of Proteus players have even alluded to the fact that they were involved in the in the mini cricket mm. system and from there how they really loved the game and went on to represent teams at different levels and went on to play for South Africa. So as much as that is really important at the grassroots level, I want to remind the listeners that this study that was conducted was among high schools. So mm. it was grade 8 to grade 12. So the consensus and the concern is after they are going through the systems of K- Baker's mini cricket, which is usually uh, might be corrected, but up to the ages of under 9 and 11, or maybe up to under 13, where are they going thereafter? Because up to that stage of under 11, under 12, that's mainly the primary school level, primary school ages. And after primary school, that's the concern. Where do parents put their boys or their girl into a certain school that's going to produce the best sportsmen for South Africa? And we see in the context of cricket as a sporting code that we see that boys-only schools or certain elite schools are providing that structure. Okay, so that's a really important thing to consider is what's going to happen by the time they reach a high school. I know of a handful of cricketers where their parents had taken them out from a certain school, put them in another school because they know that they would have actually succeeded and to play cricket at the highest level. And what had actually happened was that they had anticipated correctly. Their son went on to play cricket at the highest level. I know of a very well-known cricketer in South Africa that people, a lot of people do know who actually wanted to go to a certain boys-only school in Halteng because he knew that if he went there, he would have been able to play for South Africa. And what happened years down the line, he ended up playing for South Africa in all formats of cricket because he made that decision that he wanted to go to a certain high school. 
and not what not the other high school that he was going to go to, but he insisted that he wanted to go on a certain high school. So the so the question here is that although KFC or Baker's Mini Cricket plays a very important role, a foundational role and a grounding role for these cricket players as they go to the different levels, the question here is what's happening at the middle stages of when they are going into the high school level. Now, from a sports science perspective, we have something which is known as the long-term athletic development model. Mm-hmm. And those are different stages in different areas of where players would be able to train and exceed. Now, at the Baker's cricket level, um, or the, the, the KFC mini cricket level, that is mainly the learning to train and training to train stages, which is usually between toddler right up to about age 11. Mm. And thereafter, after training to train, we have training to compete and training to win. And that is mainly cultivated and nurtured at the high school level because now it's, the emphasis is no longer on fundamental movement skills. The emphasis is no longer about just playing cricket for the sake of having fun. The emphasis now as they go into that stage is how to compete and how to win through good skills and good coaching and good structures. And what cultivates that is a very good high school for cricket, for rugby, for hockey, for athletics, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the concern is when, where do they go to after KFC Mini Cricket? It's the high school mm. that is the key determinant to their success as a future league cricketer. Um, Tulani, I wanted to know then if you are able to find a link of where do they go to after high school now? Do players get lost in the system? I remember actually, I think it was Mfune Kongam that we spoke to. He's a coach and I know he's also part of your research paper there. And he was telling us that there's a challenge when these boys leave school, they get lost in the system and they have to look at getting a job because they have to make ends meet or whether do they go professional, do they have the patience to wait a year or two at franchise levels? Are you able to find a link there? It is very difficult scientifically to find that link because we have so many unreported, talented cricketers that have gone by the wayside. And I think we've spoken about this in the last interview, that how many talented cricketers that we do not even know about that are not part of the system or that are not part of the stats that we can analyze. So there are so many unreported cases. I mean, we've been seeing now with COVID-19, we only get to know about the confirmed cases, but what about all the unreported cases and the unreported recoveries? So in a similar context, there are so many talented cricketers that have gone by the wayside. But to answer the listener's question, you want to know if there's a ratio of players that have played at the junior level that yes. didn't reach the national level. It's very hard to answer that question because we don't have the stats of those amount of players who have been at the junior level and didn't really reach the, the level. Probably mm-hmm. certain bodies, uh, all, all cricket South Africa may have their data, but from the paper and the research that I have conducted, what I can tell the listener is the following. For every five players that we see at playing for the national setup, out of those five players, three have come from boys-only schools, one has come from a co-ed public school, and the other one has come from either club level or an academy level. Mm-hmm. That's what we see. If we broaden it a bit and if we see a team of 11 players on the field, so for every 11 proteas, six or seven proteas have gone to a, a boys-only school, two proteas have attended a co-ed public school, and two proteas have either come from a club-based system, academy system, or a semi-professional or or provincial level. That's the current uh, scenario that we have at the moment from this paper, based on the studies that that I have conducted on 461 pro-tier cricketers since 1992. That's what my data tells me. So there's still a vast majority of these cricketers coming from the boys-only school setup, 
where a minority is coming from other types of systems or the public systems or the academy systems. There's a question from David Thompson on Twitter who says, is this study not concerned with the biggest sport in South Africa, which is football? I'm not sure if I understand the question correctly. Maybe Dave is saying that football has bigger problems than cricket and all of that. But if I can just pick up on that, Dave, a lot of people have always said there's no transformation in Bafana Bafana, guys. Let's remember that the majority of people in this country are black people and it's like over 80% or 89%. So if in a starting 11 of, in a starting team of 11 players, I think if, if there's one white player there, I mean, that already makes it up because the majority of this country is 89% black. But I'm not sure if I understand your, your question correctly. Doc, do you, do you get the question? Dr. Nurbay? Dave makes a very valid point. And I think what this study will now is start to um, ask different questions now is that if this is the case with cricket, what is the case with other sporting codes? We know that with Bafana, it's a very different complexity and you know, it's a very different dynamic. And I think that we should start to investigate that. Yeah. That if there are a handful of players who are, if I may say, non-black African who want to exceed at that level, what is happening with that support structure? Why do we have a handful of so many soccer players who are black African? Very similarly with cricket and, and rugby. Why do we have a vast majority of players who are white and not non-black or non-African? Uh, non so it goes vice versa that this study that has been done on cricket will start to open more questions as to what is happening in all the other sporting codes, whether it's rugby, soccer, hockey, netball, swimming, athletics, etc. So this is a question, and I hope, and, and, and other researchers and scientists are more than welcome mm. to use my paper as a recipe to apply it in other sporting codes. I know that I am personally interested in adopting into other sporting codes going forward mm. once this project is wrapped up, but it's certainly an opportunity to use a similar scenario, a methodology or a recipe in other sporting codes to see what the consensus is there and then starting to provide relevant impl implementations and implications that would benefit a lot of athletes um, in those sporting codes. And we actually did have this discussion about the lack of white players in the PSL. We spoke to Kevin Modis Kevengo, former Vets player, and he was, he's, he runs the Renbeck Football Academy. And he was saying that he feels that white parents don't have faith in the system anymore. Some of them just want to take their boys overseas uh, because they believe that they don't have a, a chance uh, here in the country. And then we also spoke to SAFSA, who was it South African Schools Football Association, SAFSA, who ran schools football. And they were telling us that the challenge that they have is that the white schools don't want to go play matches against schools in the town because they raise concerns about safety and all of that and also they found that there's a so-called model schools some of them most of them or a lot of them rather just don't have football as a sport and that was a big concern for them but let's take the last voice note here uh, good good evening mr tabiso and the guest uh, i would like to know why they are not expanding the cricket uh, sport in uh, public schools more especially in rural areas just like Rabi, Rabi is everywhere, and uh, that can set us like uh, in a good position of getting more players and get us a lot of talent, and we can even uh, set ourselves in a good position of taking even the World Cup, and also be in a good ground. It seems like they are not doing more. I don't know. Like, I just want to know. Thank you. Okay, thanks for that voice note. And I guess that's the whole point then, um, Dr. Norby, that not enough is being done to create equal opportunities. Definitely. I think, I mean, 
Oh, in, in CSA's defense, I know they're doing quite a bit of work. And um, I know that more schools are starting to produce players that represent or play at the Cricket South Africa National Weeks. And and uh, all of these schools have one thing in common, or in the majority in any case. You know, So, I mean, that's one of the things that we need to start considering. But the thing is, is that we know we can do more because when we see the evidence and when we do needs analysis in a lot of townships and communities, we see that there's gaps. We see that there is a deficiency in that regard. So we know that we can always do more. And I think that's the question that comes in, is human resources. How many, uh, how much more do we need in order to fulfill those gaps at that level? So I think that's a really important aspect, is that um, schools and resources will always produce the, the very good players. And I think that there is a lot more that needs to be done. And when I say that there's more to be done, we are not inferring that government in Cricket South Africa is not playing their part. What we are saying is that a lot more has to be done in order to have a wider reach in order for those systems in schools to have better structures and systems in place to produce cricketers on a similar basis where boys-only schools do have those kind of structures. And then there's also a question from Tando here who says, um, I would like Dr. Nurbai just to maybe talk to us about the coaches or the teachers at these boys-only schools then because I think that they are at an advantage also because of that because these schools are using ex-international or provincial players to coach their, their learners. And he says, I'm sorry that I missed the first part of this conversation. That's a very relevant point. And I know that even on that front, uh, Cricket South Africa is doing a lot of good work in trying to enhance their coaching level and their coaching education structures for all level one, two, level three, and level four coaches. But he does make a point because we have a number of boys-only schools that have excellent coaches or have coaches that have been in the system from provincial or national levels or even at international levels. So the advice and the insights and the coaching that they are giving at some of these schools are coming from excellent coaches. And if only we have more of these in co-ed public schools or in other types of schools, we would start to produce a lot more better cricketers. So coaching is another factor. You mentioned earlier about safety being a factor from a soccer perspective Mm. for those schools to go into the townships. That is another big factor. But now we are also seeing that it's the coaching that is another factor. So what we start to understand, Tabiso, that it's not just one factor that is responsible for this. We see that it's an entire systemic aspect that contributes to the different levels of cricket structures within South Africa. So we need to start understanding it on a systemic level where we understand the macro factors and the micro factors. And when we understand this on a systemic level, we will begin to understand how to apply and solve the problem. Right now, we are managing the symptoms. And as I said before in the last interview, we can't really focus on managing the problem or the symptom. We need to start solving the problem and and correcting the cause. And only by that way, we will be able to do a lot more for those cricketers or those unreported talented cricketers that are falling by the wayside. Okay, Dr. Norby, thank you very much for your wonderful insight. It's really great chatting to you and I'm sure we're going to have more of these discussions going forward. And if you do this kind of work, the more work that you do, please keep us updated and let us know so we can have these uh, discussions on a public platform. Thank you very much, Sabisu, and keep up the great work. Thank uh, you. Thank, we'll be in touch with thank, thank you, Dr. Norby.